0: Hey, good morning. Um, My name is Channing Arndt. I'm the uh, Senior Director for Transformation Strategies at the uh, International Food Policy Research Institute. And it's my pleasure to uh, moderate this uh, event today. We're looking at the uh, El Nino event. It's ongoing in the tropical Pacific. And we're trying to look today at the implications of the El Nino event in particular for, for Africa. Uh, We're doing this in collaboration with uh, the Famine Early Warning System, uh, USAID, and uh, also with the NASA Goddard uh, Flight Space Center uh, or Space Flight Center here uh, based in, in Maryland. So our our format today is um, we have four separate short presentations, um, each one covering a a specific aspect and we'll do question and answer after each short presentation. So if you have questions, um, please go ahead and put them in uh, to the, to the chat or or other means for, for asking questions after each one, a moderator will, will take your questions and and we'll try to pose those uh, to each of the speakers. Uh, uh, the, the topics today, well, we'll start off with an overview, what's going on in the tropical Pacific and what, is it, what does it mean for, for weather patterns and, and outlook for the, the, the upcoming agricultural season in Africa um, broadly. Uh, we'll look in more detail at these implications of the, of the El Nino event. Uh, for, for markets and particularly for rice markets, because this is uh, the, the most important crop uh, that's likely to be affected coming into to African markets. Um, and then we'll look uh, subnationally at implications in three specific uh, countries, Ethiopia, uh, Malawi, and Zambia. And finally, we'll dive down and do a, a pretty detailed socioeconomic analysis uh, for... Um, For Malawi. So uh, without uh, uh, further ado, I will pass over to the moderator for the the first talk. And this is Karen Tabor, who is the agroclimatology advisor for the NASA Goddard Space Center. Karen, could you um, please come in and, and take over? Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Shannon. Um, Thanks for the introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here today to moderate the session for my colleague, Weston Anderson. Uh, Weston is an agroclimatologist um, who researches the dynamics of climate variability and its relation to food production using reanalysis products, remote sensing, and modeled simulations. He is an assistant research scientist with the University of Maryland's Earth System Science Interdisciplinary Center, and also with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. All right, Weston, go ahead.
2: Thank you very much, Karen. So today I'm going to be talking about the El Nino Southern Oscillation and a little bit uh, on the basics of what it is and how we expect it to affect crop yields globally. Next slide. So the El Nino-Southern Oscillation is a coupled mode of climate variability in the tropical Pacific, which just means that it is a way that the ocean and atmosphere evolve together to reinforce one another and remain in a particular state. In this case, when we're talking about El Nino conditions, we're referring to warm sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific, uh, the tropical Eastern Pacific, which enhances convection and precipitation in the eastern Pacific and modifies the atmospheric circulation throughout the tropics. And this is important because this modification of the atmospheric circulation is how we have it. The only no southern oscillation affects the probability of there being drought, not just in the tropical Pacific, but really globally. So this coupled mode of variability tends to develop in June and July or boreal summer tends to peak right around now in November through February. And then it tends to relax back towards neutral conditions in March through June. Uh, The animation on the left is an example of how these sorts of events tend to develop with warm sea surface temperatures peaking in boreal winter and decaying often followed by La Nina conditions. Next slide. The El Nino-Southern Oscillation isn't the only mode of uh, climate variability, and it's not the only one that's active presently. There's also the Indian Ocean Dipole, which affects the African continent as well. This is a similar mode of variability to the El Nino-Southern Oscillation in that it's also a coupled mode of variability in the ocean and atmosphere, which affects precipitation probabilities throughout the continent. Next slide. Now the reason that we care about these modes of variability is because they affect the likelihood of droughts and flooding uh, both globally and in this case throughout Africa. What we're showing here is the uh, probable impacts based on historical El Ninos uh, where these brown areas are drier than normal, tend to be drier than normal during El Ninos. These uh, green or blue areas tend to be wetter than normal. And this isn't deterministic, but we can think of this as El Nino loading the dice towards a wetter growing season or a drier growing season, respectively. And what you can see is that as we are in an El Nino state and a positive Indian Ocean dipole state, that these two states tend to reinforce one another, particularly over Eastern Africa, where both of these events will load the dice towards a wetter season, during September through December in throughout uh, Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa. And it loads the dice towards drier conditions from October through December or October to April in southeastern Africa. Next slide. Now, the, the benefit of um, both of these conditions is that while they may create adverse growing season conditions, they're predictable. And in fact, both of these have been predicted. So here, what we're showing on uh, in the larger image on the right is the forecast presently for the evolution of the El Nino-Southern Oscillation uh, or the El Nino Index through from uh, current through July, August, and September. So here we have a forecast for an intensity that's likely to peak at about 2 degrees Celsius. And for reference to past El Nino events, this puts us at slightly weaker than 1997-98, 2015-16, or 1982-98. Uh, 82-83 events, which were thought of as um, very strong or super El Nino. So these, the current event is quite strong. It's likely to be a little bit less strong than the strongest El Niños on record, but this is, uh, will have a significant uh, impact on growing conditions and is already having that impact. In the bottom left, we're showing a similar plot for the Indian Ocean Dipole Index, which is a measure of the strength of the Indian Ocean Dipole, which again, contributes to those conditions that we're seeing. And likewise, we have a forecast and we are currently experiencing quite a strong Indian Ocean dipole. So both of these events together, both being quite strong and happening at the same time has has fairly strongly affected the probabilities for flooding and drought throughout Africa. Next slide. Now, if we look at uh, moving away from just precipitation and start considering how these events actually affect um, crop yields throughout the world, we can think about this in two ways. We can look at first the image on the right. What I'm showing is deviations from expected crop yields, which means that these are deviations from average crop yields from a low frequency mean and uh, taken at the country level. And you'll see that there's really a distribution of expected impacts similar to what we saw in the distribution for precipitation. So notably, there's uh, poor maize, uh, soy, and um, sorghum yields throughout Southeastern Africa and a modification of a number of crops uh, globally. Now, if we wanna understand how this affects global totals, we can look at the plot on the left. And what this plot is showing is a box plot of global uh, average yields throughout Um, after aggregating across all countries during all past El Nino events. So each circle is an El Nino event. The box plot shows the distribution of these El Nino events, uh, and the size of the circle is proportional to the strength of the El Nino event. So while many crops offset one another, notably wheat, sorghum, and maize tend to aggregate up to a global average, that is more or less around zero. There's a large spread around zero, meaning that areas that have better than expected yields tend to offset areas that have worse than expected yields. This isn't true for every crop and notably rice. So if we look at uh, rice here, the span of the box being the interquartile range, you see that during El Nino events, there tend to be a zero to 2% global deficit in rice yields. And this is because El Nino tends to uh, favor drought throughout Asia, east, south, and southeast Asia. Um, And loading the dice towards drought in this way tends to load the dice towards slightly poor rice yield anomalies. Next slide. Now, if we look at those rice yield anomalies in a little more depth on a country scale, we can see on the left, again, the distribution of expected fractional yield anomalies. But on the right, we see these similar box plots, but now while we're showing El Nino and La Nina on the left in the regional total, we can look at the the country specific averages on the right. And what we see is that the distribution of yield anomalies is negative for some key exporting countries, including India and Thailand, which were the largest exporters last year. So while there are many countries in which Armenia does not strongly load the dice one way or the other, it does so in some potentially important exporting countries, Um, and our colleagues will talk about that more later. Next slide. We can also look at the distribution of impacts for maize, and we tend to see that the impacts in that case are far stronger and tend to be in the 10 to 15 percent below normal for southeastern Africa, which is part of the motivation for looking in more depth at these impacts later in the presentation. These impacts are, of course, of interest to the famine early warning system, and some of the ways that FuseNet tends to highlight this is using things like these special reports. So here, as this El Niño developed and as it continues to develop, we're monitoring the impacts, understanding historical events for the likely impacts, and issuing these sorts of special reports and briefs to continue to understand, monitor, and track the impacts, not just on crop production, but as they ripple through to food security. So with that, I'll wrap up my presentation and hand it back over to Karen.
1: Great, thank you, Weston. Um, I do have a, a couple of follow-up questions for you. First, thank you for that presentation. Um, it's really great to see how clearly uh, you can art- you articulate the effects of El Nino um, globally. One question I have is in areas where it, they have excessive rainfall, does that mean that there may be a better crop production or can it <laughs> negatively affect crop production?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a good question. and, and one reason that it's important to start digging into the impacts of these modes of variability beyond just looking at the precipitation. Because you may see something like increased precipitation in eastern Africa, for example, and and think that that's positive. But as for anyone that's following current events uh, in the Horn of Africa knows there's excessive flooding throughout the region. And these sorts of impacts can have really complex implications for both crop production and food security, because on, on a crop production level, you can wash away crops, you can waterlog crops, you can create um, adverse growing conditions from this flooding, even as these this increased precipitation breaks a historic five to six season consecutive drought. So while the increased precipitation is, is um, the way that we're exiting from a historic drought driven by La Nina, it can also be damaging in and of itself.
1: Great, thank you for that. Um, We do have a question from an audience member. So the question is, what advice would you give corn growing smallholder farmers in Zambia on rain patterns and when to plant corn during this period?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question and one that we'll get into a little bit more when we dive into Zambia in particular because Zambia really sits at the edge of this, the influence of the El Nino-Southern Oscillation. And what I mean by that is that while the El Nino-Southern Oscillation very strongly affects uh, both maize production and precipitation patterns in, say, Zimbabwe, in South Africa by loading the dice towards drought and poor growing conditions throughout the season, Zambia sits right on the edge, the northern most extent of the influence. And this means that the southwest of the country tends to experience more drought more frequently than further north, which can even experience positive teleconnection. So really, uh, the, the probable adaptation depends on, where you are in Zambia um, with the Southwest more likely to experience drought. And we also see that the El Niño-Southern Oscillation, the impact tends to ramp up throughout the growing season so that its influence in October, November, December tends to be a little bit weaker than once we get to December, January, and February. And um, this, this influence is amplified by the Indian Ocean Dipole, which also tends to create drought throughout southeastern Africa.
1: Great. Um, we actually we have another question from the audience. Can you please explain more about the Indian Ocean Dipole?
2: Certainly. So the Indian Ocean Dipole, similar to the El Niño Southern Oscillation, is a mode of variability that has sea surface temperatures evolving with. Uh, patterns of precipitation. And so it also affects global atmospheric circulation through this reinforcing pattern where uh, with, in this case, colder sea surface temperatures in the Eastern uh, Indian Ocean, warmer sea surface temperatures in the Western Indian Ocean. So you tend to shift your convection west in the Indian Ocean Basin, which is why we're enhancing precipitation over the Horn of Africa, which is part of what's driving this flooding event. Now the Indian Ocean Dipole is a shorter lived event than the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So whereas the El Nino Southern Oscillation tends to have a life cycle of around a year from when it develops to when it decays, the Indian Ocean Dipole often develops and decays in more of a maybe six month time horizon. So you'll see that while it didn't develop until October of this year, while the El Nino developed in June or July, it will likewise decay and subside going into the spring in January, February, March. So it it can be thought of as very similar to the El Nino-Southern Oscillation, although its influence is more localized to the Indian Ocean Rim countries, and its influence in time is a little bit more uh, localized in terms of its time scale for developing and decaying.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, probably have time for one last question. And um, my question is going to be, so you, you showed the, the slide with some crops on a global scale don't show, um, they sure they're about average out. Um, and that's, of course, it's averaging across a global scale. Um, how disruptive is El Niño for local food security and local production for some of those crops, um, like wheat and mm-hmm. um, maize?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a good question, because you can think about how the El Nino-Southern Oscillation either affects uh, crops on a global scale that, in a way that may disrupt markets, but also locally, as we're considering local trade patterns, it can be particularly important for prices and food security as well. So throughout Southeastern Africa, if there are major trading partners that are importing their maize from South Africa, and you can look at Zimbabwe as a potential example, it's getting hit twice because both its own crop production is declining and its major source of imports is declining. So there are regional patterns to its influences, and there's also a rippling effect um, by which a regional influence, which may be stronger than the global average, will affect both that country and then also its trading patterns. So really, to understand the influence of the El Niño Southern Oscillation on production and um, food security, we need to understand patterns of trade, where countries are getting their food from, whether it's within their own borders or outside of them, and how these different regions tend to be influenced by El Nino because these events are at least to some degree predictable, although each develops differently, meaning that we can't uh, perfectly predict these, these impacts.
1: Great, thank you so much, Weston. Um, all right, I'll hand it back to Channing for the next speaker.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Weston. As Weston indicated, um, we expect in general for, for an average El Nino uh, for growing conditions for rice to be, to be negatively, uh, negatively affected. Uh, so we're going to pass on and look at implications of this El Nino event uh, for, for global markets and we'll, we'll take a special look at, at rice. And the the person who will be moderating this session is Vivian Hoffman. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Vivian. She's a senior research fellow at uh, the International Food Policy Research Institute. Uh, She's in the Markets, trade and institutions unit. Vivian, please take over. Thank you
3: very much.
4: Um, thanks very much, Channing, and I'm I'm very pleased to introduce today both Joseph Glauber, who's a Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, also in the Market Trade, and Institutions Unit. Um, Joe also serves as the Interim Secretary of the Agricultural Market Information System, hosted by FAO, um, as well as Abdullah Mamun, Senior Research Analyst at IFPRI. Joseph and Abdullah will speak about how global markets and countries have reacted to the current El Nino event. Over to you, Joseph.
5: Thanks very much, Vivian. Um, yes, as, as Vivian said, uh, uh, I'm currently acting as as AMOS secretary. Uh, AMOS is a G20 platform that monitors agricultural markets, and certainly the El Nino event is something that we've kept uh, a, a close eye on over the last few um, months, uh, particularly for its impact on rice. But as, as Weston mentioned, it also certainly Southern Africa, uh, looking at corn, looking at wheat in Australia, pl- and and also in South America, where we see better, uh, where, where the anticipation is for higher yields. Um, uh, and, in any event, uh, I'll be looking at rice. Rice is very interesting. Again, as, as Weston mentioned, this is one area where El Nino typically has an adverse impact, but doesn't really have a beneficial impact like it would say for wheat market or corn market, where we might see uh, increased yields in places like South America. Here, most rice uh, that's exported in the world is is in Southeast and South Asia. And so these are markets that right now are uh, potentially adversely affected. And so on top of that, what we'll look at here are, are how government uh, policies also have interacted to, to uh, further exacerbate uh, supply shortfalls. Next slide, please. So this is uh, just a uh, 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 charts taken from the uh, AMOS market monitor, uh, uh, something that comes out monthly. And it just, interestingly enough, what AMOS and uh, US uh, Department of Agriculture and uh, the International Grains Council are all showing higher rice production for 23, 24. Understand that last year uh, we had a uh, poor uh, rice crop in Pakistan because of flooding. And so that's part, part of the the issue is the, the base of comparison, but it's just to say that, that even though we have had production shortfalls this year, um, right now the forecasts are calling for higher production. Now understand that rice is is interesting crop because uh, it has more than one crop per year. You can, in some countries, uh, uh, up to three, sometimes even four separate crops that can extend over several months during the, the year. So where an where, uh, uh, episode like El Nino may have an adverse effect on one crop, the next crop may be better or or an earlier crop may be better. Uh, 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 come through fine. So that's in one sense, what's what's showing what's going on in these markets. Next slide, please. So I I will act, I focus a little bit here on India, because India, which is uh, uh, the largest exporter, rice exporter in the world, accounts for about 40% of rice that's traded in the world. Um, it has had a number of, of um, taken a number of actions that has potentially restricted the rice uh, market and extending all the way back to last fall where they put a a ban on broken rice uh, and also uh, imposed a 20% additional levy on unmilled and milled rice. Um, That was followed by actions taken this summer um, in late July where uh, they put a ban on um, non basmati rice, Those non-basmati white rice, which excludes parboiled rice, but in um, and then uh, also have put on actions on on parboiled rice um, and on basmati rice. Uh, Next slide, please. You can see just what the impact potential impact of that is, uh, particularly say something like uh, non-basmati white rice. Very large, about almost uh, uh, seventeen. 0.8 Uh, 0.8 billion uh, uh, or million t- uh, tons traded. Uh, if you look at at the white rice, accepting parboiled and excluding uh, basmati, that's six about six million uh, broken rice, around almost four million last year. So roughly ten million uh, tons of trade are currently under bans. Um, as we'll see, that's not uh, the the impact isn't going to be nearly that severe, and that's largely because Despite uh, announcing the ban, India continues to export uh, both for humanitarian reasons uh, to countries, uh, poor countries, and also to neighboring countries, and also honoring uh, current um, uh, contracts that they might have for deliveries of rice. So the impact will be less than the 10 million, but in the next slides, we'll see exactly what's happened over the, f- the first few months that we have data. So this is uh, just shows that, that uh, export is down almost 56%. So almost half uh, in September. Um, and the real uh, uh, declines, obviously, in broken rice um, uh, in the non basmati ec- uh, excluding parboiled categories. And then, then uh, in September, we saw a big decline in parboiled as well as that those additional duties were put on parboiled rice. Next slide, please. We can show where the, those. Actually, where those exports go, um, non basmati white exports go to a lot of places in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, uh, I just picked Madagascar since that's one of the large uh, uh, markets for uh, Indian uh, non basmati white rice. And you can see there the impact uh, just particularly over the last several months, but the last two months in particular. Next slide, please. And then broken rice, which uh, uh, broken rice is is used by some countries as an animal feed. So last year, uh, China had a record amount of imports of broken rice from India. Uh, and in in large part, the big surge in exports of broken rice was, caused India to put on those export bans last year uh, to, to um, uh that had a, an immediate impact on exports to China. However, they continue to export broken rice uh, to places like Senegal, which is a big, very large importer of, of broken rice, which is used for food purposes there. And you, but, however, you can see over the last couple of months, the, those uh, 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 exports have have uh, gone down um, very much. Uh, and and uh, looking forward, the the question will be: Well, will India continue to ship some like they did last year uh, to to places like Senegal and other places in Sub-Saharan Africa? Next slide, and then lastly, parboiled parboiled uh, rice exports. When the ban went into an, uh, into effect in late July on non-basmati white exports and and broken exports, you saw a big surge in parboiled rice exports in August. That then uh, India then put on a twenty percent uh, additional duty on those uh, exports, and then those those uh, exports all declined um, in in September. Um, so I think that the next slide. Um, there have been some other countries that have taken actions. There was rumors that Myanmar might put on export restrictions. In the end, they put into place an export licensing uh, system. Thus far, it does not seem to have had an impact on on uh, um, exports, which is good news. Myanmar is about five percent of the world market currently, and so that's they're an important player. Um, And then you have uh, some import importing countries uh, put on um, uh, things like price controls. We had that uh, in the case of Philippines. That was rather short lived. I mean, price. uh, controls for things like retail prices may make sense, but what happens is that merchants and others try try to move around those export controls and either or price controls and either refuse to sell, or a black market essentially develops for that. And I think there was a lot of protests at the time. The Philippines, uh, after a month, uh, took off those price controls. I think the good news is is unlike two thousand seven, two thousand eight, where we saw very very high uh, uh, prices as a result of exports restrictions that, that were put on at the time by countries, big exporters like Vietnam and, and Thailand and India and Pakistan, um, almost 80% of this, the market uh, of the exporters back in 2007-8 put on uh, rice uh, restrictions on exports. Rice prices tripled over that period. Uh, we haven't had that this time around. Um, uh, really, India is the only one. Again, the hopes are that, that these actions will be short-lived and that we'll see a return to, um, uh, uh, with India uh, exporting more as, as we get into 2024. Uh, and when, with that, let me turn it over to my colleague, Abdullah.
6: Thank you, uh, Joe. So let's look at the the price reaction of these export policies by India. Uh, so next slide, please. So we, if we look at the international price of prices, we see that there is a spike in uh, different varieties like uh, Thailand and Vietnam rice prices has gone up. Uh, on an average, international price of rice has gone up by 20% since the announcement of export ban by India on uh, non basmati white rice uh if if you look at uh, 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 the india even the india india rice uh, 25% broken rice uh which is still it is also going up but the 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 reaction we see in other uh, major rice exporters like vietnam or thailand their rice prices has gone up um, significantly because the importers are now looking to alternate markets. So which uh, here Vietnam and Thailand are coming and their prices have gone up. Next slide, please. So what about the retail prices? We see that uh, in most of the retail price market, uh, uh, the price has gone up. Uh, The the largest spike we see in uh, Uzbekistan, followed by Haiti, Mali, uh, Tanzania, Uh, Only a few market that has seen uh, a drop uh, in rice prices, but most of the markets have seen a large uh, spike in retail prices. Next slide, please. So here is an interesting case uh, I would like to present here. Uh, You know, the Bangladesh uh, is the largest uh, consumer of rice. Uh, Almost 67% of their daily calorie intake is coming from rice. Uh, but interestingly, Bangladesh has uh, been able to see that the, the price of rice has uh, remained stable uh, in 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 this year. Uh, even in some cases, the price has gone down uh, per kg, uh-huh. uh, where the food inflation overall food inflation was uh, is is uh, twelve year high, uh, almost twelve point five percent. So how the, the country has, has been able to uh, uh, achieve this stability in uh, rice prices? Uh, a couple of factors. Uh, uh, the, the consecutive good harvest of rice, uh, uh, the, the Bangladesh has been able to see that. Uh, this year, uh, the amount production, which is based on the monsoon season, is, is, looks good. Uh, the country has been able to also implement a strict anti hoarding law. Uh, which passed in uh, April this year. And uh, the government of Bangladesh uh, took uh, advanced decision uh, to import rice from um, uh, countries like India and other markets. Uh, This this has also contributed to the the stability in uh, rice market. The the country has uh, subsidized uh, almost 10 million households rice to uh, rice supply to 10 million households, so this has also helped to uh, contribute help to uh, make the rice market stable. So this is uh, uh, this gives us a lesson that uh, how a good policy of input subsidy or subsidy in the market uh, in terms of the cash subsidy to the consumers uh, that help uh, to remain the, to, to keep to keep the market rice market stable. Next slide. So what is the summary of uh, these export trade policies? Uh, we see that the ban is potentially, uh, imp- will impact the 50% of, expo- of its exports, but the globally 20% of the world trade uh, is likely to, Im- to be impacted by the export ban and that, uh, the taxes on other varieties of rice. So, uh, and the price is going up. Uh, we have seen that 20%, the price has gone up by 20% at the international level. But this will depend on whether the LNU will have a, a more significant impact in Southeast and South South Asian rice production. We have to keep monitoring of the, of the situation in, in, uh, in harvesting this month and then in the coming month. And we also look want to see whether other rice suppliers will follow uh, the restrictions that were imposed by India. So, But the good news is that the ASEAN countries uh, where the other large exporter of rice, uh, like uh, uh, Thailand and Vietnam, uh, they are not going to, or they will refrain from any export restriction policies. So this is a good news for us. So overall, the market is up, the price has gone up. Uh, we have to look we have to keep monitoring of the situation uh, on the ground. Thank you.
4: Sorry, Mike. Um thanks very much, Joseph and Abdullah, for the excellent presentation. It's clear that this El Niño event has really rippled through the global food system and and caused disruptions uh, across the globe. And I'm I'm struck by the extent to which one country, India, really dominates the international rice trade. What a huge impact the policies of a a single country can have on the supply of countries that rely on imports of this commodity. India's imposition of export restrictions on rice seems to stem from a classic externality problem, as we call it in economics, right? These are restrictions that benefit a segment of the Indian population, at least a segment, by keeping prices down. Of course, there are also farmers within India who are presumably hurt by these lower prices. Um, But the main cost of higher food prices is on consumers in net rice importing countries where the restriction of international supply has really caused prices to rise dramatically. So both of you, as well as many others, have written about the negative consequences at the global level of such actions, um, including the exacerbation of price volatility when we have supply disruptions due to things like a global pandemic um, or extreme climate events like this one. And we can, of course, expect these to increase over time. So could you talk a bit about the mechanisms through which the international community can discourage countries from taking these sorts of unilateral actions of restricting exports? Um, And what tools do we have? Why are these tools not strong enough or not used enough um, to stop these sorts of actions? And do you see any prospect of of strengthening international cooperation in this arena going forward?
5: Yeah, Vivian, no, no, it's a great question. And um, certainly with export restrictions, you're absolutely right, where they're they're targeted to help the domestic Consumer, um, as you rightly point out, oftentimes the domestic producer is actually hurt because of, they don't get to enjoy the the higher prices that they would see um, had there not been the export restrictions. Uh, and and oftentimes, you know, re- remember that that the raw commodity price is actually a small part of the retail price. So you have all these ex or uh, post farm gate costs on transforming the rice and milling the rice and and getting it to stores that actually add a lot of value and won't be affected by whatever actions you're taking on these export restrictions so the impact on on uh, domestic food inflation may be quite muted is is my point so but but the impacts on on world markets as we've seen in in uh, uh you know certainly previous uh, uh Episodes and in the current one, as, as Abdullah had pointed out, that you know that's a big impact on can be a very large impact on on world market prices. So what can the the global market uh, what what can the the world do? Um, the World Trade Organization um, recognizes the rights of countries to impose export restrictions, but they do have reporting requirements. C- countries that put in export restrictions are supposed to report and. Um, uh, unfortunately, those report uh, the reporting is not very timely. Oftentimes, it is doesn't happen at all. And in fact, you know, uh, Abdullah and uh, our colleagues at, at IFPRI have been tracking export restrictions. And frankly, they spent a lot of time just looking at news reports and other things around the world, seeing what what the press and others are reporting that countries are doing. To get that information from the WTO it may take very, you know, months later. Do you actually get a reporting to that? Um, I, I will say the the WTO has taken up the issue of uh, exports of humanitarian aid. So a big concern is, of course, if the World Food Program, which procures a lot of wheat and rice and other commodities from from countries and then ships it to those countries in need. Uh, the the WTO members agreed at their last ministerial last year that they would prohibit any export restrictions going in that would affect world food program uh, exports. And I think that's a very positive step, but it's a small portion of what's traded in the world. And unfortunately, as we know, these impacts have uh, the the impacts of an export restriction largely are on prices. Prices doesn't matter where you are. Prices rise globally. And so, uh, um, you know, the the humanitarian aid is important, but it's a small portion of, of rice supply. So uh, we still have this very serious problem, I think. And WTO members have been trying to grapple with it um, and, and there have been proposals to impose more restrictions and other things. But uh, up until this point, uh, uh, we don't uh, there's been very little progress there.
4: Thanks, Joseph. I'm, I'm curious, since this is a predictable event, right, we have forecasts for El Niño in advance. Are there actions that countries can take? Um, similar, I think, I think Bangladesh did some of this, and Abdullah, you mentioned the um, rice supply hasn't gone down there as much, and I, I wonder if other countries can adopt strategies that are sort of forward-looking to avert potential price spikes.
5: Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I'll, I'll let Abdullah uh, also chime in here, but but it's, it, it, you know, you're right, we we watched this El Nino develop, but I think as Weston pointed out earlier, it's very unclear in terms of what the actual impact will be. Um, you know, and in some some years they're mild uh, events, and in other years they're very serious. You look at what happened in Australia, you had Australian producers choose because of the potential for a severe a severe El Nino. They chose not to plant as much wheat as they normally do. So wheat production, we've known is going to be down in Australia, largely because uh, um, uh, that that you know that that's an imp- uh, uh, already farmers were anticipating it and not planting. And I think the similar. We had a question in the earlier session about what what should a Zambian corn farmer do, you know, in in reaction. So you do get some of that. But Abdullah, you might want to. Uh, talk a a bit more about Bangladesh?
6: Uh, No, actually, uh, this is a good question, uh, Vivian. Uh, uh, The the policies that are implemented, uh, because Bangladesh has such a high dependency for calorie intake on rice, uh, the government is really worried about, uh, and they took uh, a number of measures, uh, and Uh, Over the years, we have seen that uh, Bangladesh is subsidizing heavily uh, on the fertilizer or on the seeds and in other imports. So that helps uh, the farmers uh, to to keep growing the rice production. And uh, this year, weather is also helping uh, the country to have the market, uh, have have a good production. uh, I I just want to add one uh, some other points like uh we have seen the M S weekly summary report where other countries are taking uh, action like Indonesia a few weeks back they put uh, price control measures in in domestically. Uh, I have I have seen also the Philippines or Philippine government has ordered. To import additionally one million tons of rice, this is the news just uh, came out last week. So yeah, we are seeing the reaction from uh, other uh, large consumers of uh, rice. So uh, I think the the Bangladesh uh, the country the, the the policy coupled with import subsidy policy coupled with uh, uh, the price control or the subsidy to the consumers. Uh, that
4: help uh, the market to stabilize. Uh, yep. Great, thanks Abdullah. So I see some questions in the chat. Um, first of all, would changes in fertilizer costs uh, due to you know spikes in energy prices and, and other factors explain some of the increase in in rice pra- um, prices beyond the El Nino effect?
5: You know, I, it, it, certainly uh, fertilizer prices like other commodity prices hit record levels last year. And um, I think the, the difficult thing is to sort of assess those impacts, uh, you know, on, on crop production. Because as I say, if you look at US, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, you look at International Grains Council, look at Amos, they're all showing, for the most part, larger uh, yields, uh, certainly last year. Uh, almost every country except for Pakistan had higher rice yields, so it obviously didn't have any much impact on on, or at least it, it a casual glance would suggest it didn't have much impact on on rice production. Whether or not there's longer term impacts, um, particularly since you know, uh, particularly for uh, we do have export restrictions on uh, phosphate fertilizers and nitrogen fertilizers out of China. Uh, We've had, uh, uh, Russia has has had difficulties exporting potash. Belarus, there's been sanctions on on exports of potash from Belarus. All those have created a lot of churn in the global market for fertilizers, as you've seen countries seek other sources. So uh, in some cases, India has imported actually more fertilizer from Russia over the last year. Uh, whereas countries like Brazil, the world's largest importer of, of fertilizers, had to go to uh, increase imports from Canada for potash, for example, and so. But the overall impacts on on yields. Uh, IFBRI has a project ongoing right now that's trying to assess that in more detail and to sort through those impacts. And um, uh, James or someone may want to comment on that later. But um, yes, I, I, it certainly would have. Uh, could have an impact, but but it hasn't really manifest itself, at least in the global data that we're, we're observing.
4: Great, thanks. Um, one last quick question. Do we have any forecasts on production prices um, in in the Indian um, market or that area and generally for the next few months coming up? Uh,
5: no, I know the 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 forecasts are certainly glow. Or, the crop year. And so that's that's really the, the key thing. And they are they have shown they have been reduced since uh so most most of these forecasting uh uh platforms like USDA's or International Grain's Council, they begin in the spring. So in May they start to uh put out forecasts. All those forecasts have been reduced substantially or significantly uh over the last three or four uh um months um as we've seen what the impacts of el nino have been but i don't think they're nearly as devastating as many people had anticipated and indeed globally we're showing you know rice production up but it's important to remember about rice that rice really does vary a lot by variety and and consumer demand so you know people who buy a lot of basmati rice May not see white rice as a perfect substitute in any sense, and so all these things can have, you know, uh, uh, local and regional and and uh, impacts.
4: Okay. Well, thanks. I think we're out of time for our session. Thanks very much, Joseph and Abdullah. That was that was fascinating. Back to you, Channing.
0: Thank you very much, Vivian, um, Joseph, and Abdullah. Um, we're, we're gradually uh, shifting west here, so we started with the, the, the tropical Pacific, and then, and then we looked at, at rice markets and, and what's going on, exports to, to Sub-Saharan Africa, and now we're going to uh, look in more detail uh, into Africa, specifically Ethiopia, Malawi, and Zambia, um, and I will pass the, the, the moderation to Liz Zagotu, who is a policy analyst at the International
3: Food Policy Research Institute. Uh, Liz, please go ahead. Thank you very much.
7: Liz, you're still muted. Yes. Thank you, Jenny. And uh, in the next session, um, we will be looking at the yield and populations affected by El Nino with Dr. Liang Ji Yu, a senior research fellow in IFBRI's Foresight and Policy Modeling Unit. His current research focuses on modeling agricultural land use, Systems. And in the next 10 minutes, he will expound on estimating the impact of climate change and climate variability on food security in Ethiopia, Malawi, and Zambia. Yeah, over
8: to you. Okay. Thank you, Nitz. I think the slice is up. Yeah, I will actually present this basic uh, piece of the subnational impact on you know, the three represented countries, as Lisa said. Next slide, please. Ethiopia, Malawi, and Zambia. You know, I will start with Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a little bit complex in terms of El Nino impact. You know, here we use drought index at actually, you know, pixel levels. This is very special, you know, so called pixel size here is where I talk about uh, five minutes by five minutes, uh, uh, roughly about 10 kilopixel. We actually use the rainfall, you know, the chirps, you know, this company's rainfall estimates data to look at this uh, kind of rainfall deficit. So, you will put the rainfall data into the three categories: low normal, slight dry, modern dry, and then, you know, extremely dry. And then we define the drought as, uh, you know, drought, a long drought. You know, you're talking very small piece of land, right? Very pixel. Category three, four, and five is a modern dry, very dry, and the drought. And if you look at there, and then we look at the last 30, 33 years where we have this kind of uh, data and then we look at the five crops, the major crops, barley, maize, and sorghum, taff, and wheat, and then what I'm going to present is presenting what is the impact on the on this five crops and look at the drought Was I define the drought index. Uh, next slide please. Here I we are looking at this uh, over the 32 years, you know, all the way from 1990 to the current the years, actually, you know, it's is it's I think maybe it's common sense, you know, Ethiopia is really frequently affected by drought. And then through this 33 30, is 50%, even look actually we are look at the pixel count. Again, you know, the pixel is about 10 by 10 kilometers, but 100 kilometers, you can you can times the the number on the on the on the y axis times by one hundred. You got square kilometers, right? So almost fifteen percent Ethiopia. You know more than two thousand pixels is about you know, two hundred thousand square kilometers. In fact, we're drought in the twenty-two different days. So Ethiopia is a really kind of drought-prone um, uh, country. And in thirteen out of twenty-two years, more than thirty percent Ethiopia actually were affected by drought. You know this is you know again. Look at the overall, you know, of course, this is some kind of particularly is affected a lot. Next slide, please. And then another complex about it, the drought and El Nino in Ethiopia. is you know, our drought and Nino is is not the same. If you will look here, El Nino yeah, a lot aligned very well. You know, it's, uh, it's I think you know, basically, you know, in the in the 11 El Nino years, which you know from 90 to 2000, only six this is highlighted here is 92, 95, 2003, 2005, 2015, and are drought years identify the drought index according to the to, to, to index I just pointed out. And the 14 years identified drought years is not El Nino year, and of the 12 and uh, 12 drought years impacted more than 30 percent Ethiopia. Only three years, you know, is El Nino years 2003 2015. So, this is not El Nino created equal, and also drought years, El Nino years is not the same in Ethiopia. Next slide, please. And then, here I look at, the, look at the space. So, again, even El Nino, look at the El Nino, El Nino years and the, the drought is the same, like the six years, and all the six annual drought years, if you can see. It's different. That's not only Nino years, as I say. Nino years are the same. Even if it's a drought like 2015, actually, is a huge drought, happened close to 60 million rural people, or nearly 60 percent of the total can be affected. But on the other hand, if it's a if it's a drought like the 1995 which is presently hit on the left uh, left side, most left side here happened. You know, the most affected regions. Is is in Somalia and uh, and uh, Bulashangu, Uma, these two a uh, district, but again the one constant is the Somalia. If you look at the Somalia, look at it differently. Uh, even look at this drought and El Nino years, the the Somalia is always drought prone. This is maybe it's not news for for a lot of you. Next slide, please. And here we also look at the the, the Malawi and Zambia. Malawi Zambia actually we are we are follow the same methodology as. Western presented, but the difference is now for Malawi, with Zambia, we use instead we use national data, we use sub national data. So we focus again, we focus on maize because you know, focus is dominant crop, and then we look at historical record from 1980, uh, 1984 to 2016, and then you know, as uh, Western point out we look at the anomalies, actual and the trend from this year. Again, the one thing I need to point out as uh, Western or do, you know, because of the El Nino happened year and the growing season is kind of you know El Nino happens right now, but it's definitely a, a growing season next year. So sometimes it's like a one year shift. Next slide, please. So here we show the maize yield for the. El Niño in Malawi. Malawi, of course, this is like a na- on the top figure actually showing the national kind of average. You know, we have the trend, and then on the lower bottom we show the the detrended after detrended. So you can see, if you look again, one message is certainly uh, is El Niño can have a uh, western or pound have negative or positive. Most of these negative in Malawi. Uh, in, in Malawi, you can see, but there are also some positive years, right? Positive affected. Even on the maize year. If you look at all um 11 years, the El Nino years during our this study period, the negative impact over the national mean is about 11 point, uh, percentage You know, if you look, but if you look at if you just pick up the negative years, right? Like if only seven negative is much more almost a double, almost 22 so, percent You know, this is what we keep in mind, is also negative positive part. So next slide, please. Similar to Zambia, but you can see Zambia yield. If you look at the previous slides, I Malawi's yield is actually going up. But if you look at Zambia, uh, the yield actually kind of you know it's not more like first going down and going uh, going up again. Again, if you look at national average, you know this is uh, uh is only about eight percent. But if you look, at it, it's only the negative El Nino years. This is much easier, almost one quarter, twenty three percent of quarter on the national average. Of course. I mean, there's a whole spatial uh, kind of uh, 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 heterogeneity, which I'll talk about later. But the one thing I want to point out here in Zambia, we have one year data is missing, so 1995 data is missing. So in, in that sense, we only, compared to the Malawi study, we're always short of one year. Next slide, please. Now I'll go to a little bit of detail about, again, the spatial heterogeneity. So, so any the impact effect, you know, this is a Malawi map, again, on the right side, the right uh, uh, side is the the, the maps showing the earth average or the El Nino years, or the eleven El Nino years. On the um, on the right side is uh, is only to pick up the selective affected years, only the seven years. So you can imagine, you know, selective year is much worse in the sense. Even look at the categories, we are categories you maybe you cannot see clearly, you know. You know this. This is where you know in the left side even there's no negative thirty, net, more than thirty percent kind of decline in the district level yield is 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 gone in the average. Again on this uh, on this uh in the text I show which year actually detailed which year is El Nino year which is negative years. As simple we just a simple mean c- cutoff for the for define right. Again if you look at this here. You know, even look at the average likelihood, you know, again, you know, the spatial, you know, it's most affected here, you know, this is a dark red one, you know, this red this region district have almost 35% of Ukraine. so sometimes average actually kind of uh, 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 hidden, you know, the, the, the severity about the local level. Next slide, please. Here we look at a little bit about the the, the, the the people, rural people affected. So what we show, we use the, remember, only look at the 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 background map is the seven negative years yield impact. You know, this is the same map I showed before, but the bar chart shows in the the affected population by each district, you know. And then if you will think it's overall, you know, almost more than half a rural population, even the district maize yield almost 15 to 30% lower than the, the kind of reduction, right? And then a lot of kind of message is also 30% of rural people are in in, in the one region, you know, you can see M- Magachi and Salima, and uh, Balaska, you know, this is a few regions. It's also uh, highlighted the spatial heterogeneity affected by the, by the lo- uh, uh, locally. L- Next slide, please. Now we are looking, yeah. Now we are looking at the, the electric impact and uh, the yield impact on the on the maize yield. Again, just showing the, the, the three categories, you know, maize yield production. You know, 60% in the 15 to 20 percent percent kind of reduction, yield reduction, also 20% of maize areas in in the few kind of a dark blue, blue, dark is a dark red regions. Next slide, please here yeah, actually going from maize going to the old crop area again you're showing again this is also similar for malawi the crop area you know in 15 to 20% reduction yield rate, almost more than half of the malawi crop area is affected so the, the 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 affected area is quite large go to next slide please i think the Mal- and the Zambia case is a little bit. Uh, it's a similar. We are similar. So I go through that very quickly because time constraints. I know there's a Zambia question. If you are uh, you know, from Zambia, the ask question, you can see the the map where you are living. You know, and Zambia is a similar story like uh, like uh, Malawi. But but you know, you can see this again. This spatial heterogeneity. And you know, look at the affected area. Just look at the right. Right side of the figure, even the most of the worst affected regions actually is the Southern Zambia. There's a lot of stuff. This is where dark red. Going next slide, please. Yeah, this is also showing the rural population again. Again, more than more than half of the population is affected because of, because of this you are talking about 15 to 20 percent kind of lower of yield uh, uh maize uh yield. Next slide. Yeah, I think this is showing again is the the maize area. Next slide. This is total crop area. You know, those crop area similar figures. again, is a more, almost fifty a, percent a of the the the, uh, the crop areas affected in the fifteen to twenty percent of kind of uh, range of uh, uh, impact. Next slide. So I will summarize maybe, you know, some with three points, not all El Nino's are created equal. The impact El Nino could be negative or positive, and the severity varies from the year to year, again. Again, there's El Nino impact crop and rural population have a huge spate heterogeneity. some natural analysis necessary, It's so almost like self-promoting, but we, we do realize this kind of local impact is kind of uh, different from region to region. Also, the variation of El Nino impact, both in time and space, have huge implications for policy intervention, in particular for pre- preparation and planning of El Nino. I think, uh, uh, hopefully, our next speaker will talk a little bit more on the uh, policy implication side. Go back to you, Liz.
7: Thank you very much, uh, Liang. Um, that was very comprehensive, and thank you so much for the detailed information you've provided. For me, just the, the one question I'd like to ask you, Liang, is um, if, if I were a person in any of the three countries you've described, and I was working in disaster preparedness, uh, what would be the key message you'd give me as somebody who's working in this um, area in terms of what you've looked at through the past years and then what should i be preparing for if i were working in this area thank
8: you okay this is a very good question actually yeah you're right i think it's this key message i'm trying to say is you know this whole spatial uh, uh, heterogeneity also from uh, also kind of temporal uh, 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 heterogeneity so if you have a if we were prepared planning for that you know targeting is important the targeting you know, you look at this you have to look at this different impact you know both in terms of of the production uh, productivity and the rural population so in in preparation location right it's location 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 you know so where is affected there remember it also have a positive impact so this is a, probably that give you a kind of kind of targeting kind of more more, more kind of well prepared for some regions, and then not, you know, have the uh, kind of one size fits all policy in that part. On the other hand, of course, it's also very uh, important to know, of course. I mean, the predictive also uncertainty part. I think it's the West and even um, our uh, and Joe and uh, Abdullah also presented. This is some a lot of uncertainty. How do you build certainty in in? within your preparation that is much more important than 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 the uh than planning and the preparation for your for for deal with el nino
7: thank you liang and um maybe just to follow on um the question that was asked by um one of our participants around zambia when western was giving his presentation so if if i were a smallholder farmer what what exactly a smallholder farmer in Zambia? What exactly would be important for me to know out of all this uh, vast information that you've uh, you've given us?
8: Thank you. Yeah, I think if I think if you look at the Zambia map, if you are the, if, uh, the 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 farmer who asks the question is living in the southern part, unfortunately, this is most uh, from a historic point of view is that uh, most affected by by that one. If you are lucky in the northern part, as Western said, we are Zambia. Unfortunately, in the border in the northern part, you are you are maybe lucky. In that sense, I would say you know you have to prepare you know to, for the worst you know right even in the southern part, particularly you know that will be affected. When you know. maybe we are lucky, this of course they still have unpredictability, as I said, a lot of uncertainty. But from historical point of view, you are actually you know affected. You have to prepare for the for the worst case scenario in 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 Zambia in Park.
7: Okay, great. Thank you so much, Liang. Over to you, Chani.
0: Thank you very much, Liz. Thank you, uh, Liang. Uh, that was that was really interesting. So we're we're going progressively tighter, and I think it's it's fascinating that. Um, um, there's there's these effects that you know when it's negative, so it's not always negative, the, the impact is not always negative, but when it's negative, it's quite strongly negative, and that's true in both Zambia and Malawi. We have actually a question that just came through on what are the contingency plannings taken to adaptation to the effect of El Nino, um, and actually this, this whole next uh, presentation really is headed towards that. So I'm going to ask um, Joaquin Duarte, who is a senior research fellow at IFPRI, and also the uh, country program leader for IFPRI in Malawi, uh, to please take over the moderation, and we'll run through uh, almost on exactly that question uh, for for the country. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Channing, and indeed we'll take a closer look at what the possible socioeconomic consequences of El Nino could be in a country like Malawi. Malawi is often in the Eye of the storm when it comes to weather related events. Um, unfortunately, sometimes quite literally, in like in February, we just had a tropical storm Freddie that caused havoc in the country um, in the south, leading to loss of lives and livelihoods. And now, um, as the previous presenters have pointed out, we're possibly facing drought conditions in much of the country because of El Nino. And so, in this part, we'll have two speakers. Um, the first is James Thurlow, who is the director of IFPE's Foresights and Policy Modeling Unit. Um, he will talk about the kind of ripple effects in agricultural production shortfall, like the one that might possibly be induced by El Nino, could have on the Malawian economy and on the Malawian people. Um, And then we'll move on to our guest, Andrew Jamali. Um, He is the research manager at Malawi's National Planning Commission, and he's been coordinating an evidence gathering exercise to inform policymakers here in Malawi. And Andrew really has his finger on the pulse when it comes to policy formulation here in Malawi. So we're really happy to have him talk to us about the work that his team has been able to do to inform the responses here in Malawi. So over to you, James.
9: Thanks, Joachim. So, as Joachim said, or as everyone has stressed, um, we uh, we don't know exactly what um, El Nino might mean for Malawi in the coming year, in this current growing season. And as Liang has just pointed out, we really do need to focus on sort of where within Malawi or where within Zambia the impacts are likely to be most severe. So, what we do now is we turn to... Um, based on the work that Liang has done, we now turn to looking at what the impacts might be on um, on the economy, on poverty, on on undernourishment in Malawi. And that provides a context um, around which uh, Andrew will talk about the the policy responses. Next slide, please. So we're very much building on the work that Liang has just presented. And you can see on the right-hand side some familiar maps now showing Um, where in Malawi the impacts on maize yields or maize production might be most severe. And so we don't know which of these scenarios, or which of the wh- what type of El Nino event Malawi may experience this year? But we can use historical information to to uh, develop some scenarios so that we can then use some of our models here at IFPRI to estimate broader impacts on the economy and population. And so we're going to run two different scenarios. Um, we're going to have a baseline scenario to begin with that is a typical business as usual without the impacts of El Nino, but two different El Nino scenarios. The first we're going to call a typical El Nino scenario, which is where we go back and we look at those 11 years that Liang talked about and we take an average of those 11 El Nino events um, and we can see on the left hand on the right hand side under the typical scenario there's about an eight percent decline in maize production and obviously impacts on other crops as well. But then we also run an adverse, what we call an adverse El Nino scenario. This is one where we just focus in on an average of those El Nino events that, had a de- that led to a decline in um, maize production relative to trend. And you can see on the furthest right-hand figure that there was a 20% reduction in maize production on average over those, those, um, those seven El Nino events. And this gives us two, um, uh, two scenarios measuring different possible scales of El Nino impacts in Malawi. Next slide, please. So we're going to use a frame of IFPRI's farms, which is a foresight and rapid response modeling system. And it consists of a lot of country models. In this case, we're just going to use Malawi. And these models, which we call RIAPA, have two key characteristics that make them good tools for this type of analysis. The first is that they are economy wide. So we've seen from Liang, for example, impacts on maize production or on broader agriculture. But we know that shocks to agriculture can spill over and ripple through the rest of the economy, um, including maize milling, food services, other sectors of the economy. So we want to capture the, and certainly for for poultry and other sectors within agriculture, so we want to capture the spillover effects um, from maize and from other crops to the broader food system and economy. The second is um, these models are macro micro, so we can can trace the effects of production in different agricultural subsectors through employment household incomes poverty and and food security down to the household level so this is an ideal tool for doing this kind of broader um, uh, analysis next slide please So I'm gonna give three different pieces of results, very high level results. The first on GDP, the second on poverty, and the third on undernourishment. So starting here on this slide, the impacts on GDP on the economy. The first thing I should stress is that Malawi, as you know, is a very agrarian economy. Agriculture is about a quarter of the economy, maize is about a quarter of agriculture, and the agri-food system makes up almost half of Malawi's economy. So it's no surprise that shocks to agriculture during a typical or adverse El Nino year are going to have economy-wide implications. It reduces farm incomes, it disrupts supply chains, and reduces national income overall. And you can see on the right-hand side the results from our two different scenarios. These are changes from the baseline And you can see here under a typical El Nino year, an impact, a decline in agriculture of about 9% during a typical El Nino year. Um, That has implications for the broader agri-food system, about a 7% decline as those production shocks in agriculture ripple through the supply chains, and an impact on the overall economy, about a 4% decline in GDP. Uh, This is very much in line with past analysis of droughts in Malawi. On the right-hand side, you can see during an adverse El Nino year, much bigger impacts on the economy, almost double the size, but more than double. The size in terms of total GDP. Next slide, please. So what does GDP mean? GDP is, is national income, but we're also interested in what it's going to do to poor households incomes. And El Nino is going to affect poverty in two different ways. It's obviously going to affect farmers, falling maize yields or falling crop yields more generally, are going to lead to falling farm incomes and that's going to hurt a very poor segment of the population, but it's also going to lead to rising food prices in Malawi, which is going to affect a lot of households that are um, not engaged in farming, but are big food consumers. And actually the poor in Malawi, whether they're in rural or urban areas, spend a large chunk of their income on food consumption. So rising prices can have a big impact on them too. The second thing to note about Malawi is that poverty is unfortunately already very high. And so many of the households that are near the poverty line, um, they're also in urban areas and they're not farmers. And so what we're seeing when we, when we run the modeling analysis is that El Nino pushes many more households deeper into poverty, about a, a one and a half to, to two and a half percentage point increase in the national poverty rate. That's about that's over 600,000 people in the adverse Malawian scenario pushed into poverty as a result of, of El Nino, Also, many people already in poverty pushed even further into poverty. What's interesting from this results is that the poor households in urban areas are actually amongst the worst affected or the most vulnerable to these effects. Because when maize prices rise or or, uh, crop yield prices rise, um, crop prices rise, that can actually offset some of the income losses that farmers face in rural areas. But for poor urban households, it's just a simple increase in food prices. But we do still see poverty rising in rural areas. Next slide, please. Here is a similar set of results looking at undernourishment, the number of households who, who don't um, consume a, a minimum calorie threshold, and we can see El Nino is going to reduce calorie availability in the country quite significantly, and there's going to be a a consequent increase in undernourishment again between about one and a half and two and a half percentage points of the, of the, of the population. Um, rural households in this case actually do experience a larger increase in undernourishment than they did um, poverty, and that's because um, when calories are not available, it doesn't matter whether or not prices are rising and your incomes aren't falling as much. A lack of calories is going to mean that there is a, a, an increase in undernourishment or calorie availability for everyone across the country. In this case, in the adverse scenario, about four, four, um, 500,000 more uh, Malawians um, become undernourished as a result of the shock. Next slide, please. And so just to summarize, we need to keep in mind that El Nino years differ, and we've just looked at an average of the historical um, uh, El Nino events. And so the results are indicative, right? We're not making predictions at this point, but we do suspect, based on our modeling analysis and historical experience, that there will be quite significant economy-wide impacts much slower uh, GDP growth during this period. I haven't shown um, the, the the shock in the recovery period but about a year or two's worth of development could be could be lost as a result of this El Nino event in, in, a, in an adverse year but we do expect based on our modeling analysis and experience that there will be a worsening of poverty and undernourishment. We've done similar analysis for Zambia and we found quite similarly sized uh, impacts. Um, And so preparing policy responses as everyone has suggested is crucial. This is something that really is is going to be important in the case of Malawi. And so I'm gonna hand over to Andrew um, who's gonna talk about some of those responses um, that are taking place already, thanks.
10: Uh, could you please present the slide? Um, right, so like my two colleagues mentioned, I think the analysis has been quite eye opening in the context of Malawi's policy space uh, with the fact that uh, we're looking at uh, how these El Nino conditions would have to make us think through the policy space and how reorganize our response uh, with regards to programming to alleviate and offset the damages or the likely effects of these conditions uh, in as far as the country is concerned on the people. So there's been some collaborative research that we've been doing uh, with Ifree and other partners in the country We're looking at the economy-wide effects of these El uh, Nino conditions. And uh, we we have also made some kind of advisory to the presidency and... Some ministries that are concerned with this, like Minister of Agriculture, Minister of uh, Economic Affairs and Finance, who actually houses the social pol- protection policy and this operationalization in the space. But we've also been supporting a foresight policy analysis uh, and planning processes across government ministries in response to
8: the revelation
10: that Malawi is really in these own you know, conditions uh, with this you know, economy-wide effects, particularly starting with food situation, uh, Wealth, uh, farm productivity losses, uh, erosion of you know, household production capacities, uh, as well as implications on household incomes and stuff like that. So, we, we've been working on this, and uh, so far, uh, there have been some tremendous response across the space in terms of, first of all, acknowledging that uh, we are in not normally uncharted territories, but queer circumstances of the chartered territories, because now This El Nino is coming at the backdrop of other crises that Malawi has been going through, recent of which is the devaluation of the kwacha, which is the local currency, against the major trading currencies like the dollar. And that kind of erodes our input capacities, the forex reserves, which in the context of the current food crisis, now that we are proceeding into the lean season, coupled with the projected El Nino conditions, uh, is likely to affect. Our you know ability to you know juice mm-hmm. and Malawi in this particular cropping season. Uh, next slide, please. So, <clears throat> what kind of you know policy interventions are uh, actually underway? Uh, first of which is that there's been an early warning signal sounded across the space, uh, targeting you know farmers and 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 policymakers respectively with different messages for farmers an indication that this season is not going to be normal. Uh, we're likely to see some variations in normal patterns of rainfall, and already the temperatures, are amb- the ambient is quite high, and that's going to have an implication on the you know, rainfall or precipitation patterns, uh, and that has direct implications on cropping season you know, characteristics to do with maybe onset of rainfall. Uh, we're talking about its duration, the number of dry days in the season, Across the country uh, is quite varied, much more pronounced negatively in the south uh, and central region of the country. so that early warning signal has been presented across the space and farmers have been advised uh, to really work on you know less water you know you know kind of demanding crops uh, varieties, particularly the cereals with, and legumes. so we're talking about working on pigeon peas, uh, ground nuts, you know, crops that may not demand as much water as it is in the season, and uh, the use of also drought tolerant kind of you know varieties, early maturing seed varieties, and also uh, facilitating irrigation in spaces where it is possible to to access you know water water sources you know water for for, for the farms uh, among the you know population, particularly those in the rural areas that are likely to be affected. So that's at a farm level, and then at the government level, there's been some kind of you know, movement in terms of distributing food resources and social cash transfers to the vulnerable population. But I must highlight that this is in response to the lean season, which is coming at the backdrop of uh, frequent bouts of cyclones that have also affected production in the previous years, the slowed kind of productivity in the economy as a result of COVID and other you know, global health pandemics that have been hitting Malawi of late. For well, the El Nino part of it, government is now restructuring itself, reorganizing its policy space and strategy on how uh, the number of people experiencing food insecurity and possible malnutrition is likely to increase as a result of a population that will suffer the El Nino conditions. So what is going on now is uh, some kind of, you know, in-house understanding uh, between government, you know, departments like the Department of Disaster Management Affairs. Uh, the Minister of Finance and Economic Affairs, which looks at uh, uh, social cash transfers and the National Planning Commission, looking at how best we need to reconfigure the response space with regards to these conditions. So there, there are talks about you know ensuring that uh, we should stockpile, um, we should stockpile food, uh, and make sure that uh, there is a proper targeting because not all the not all household populations, not not all rural population in the country, will be affected equally. Like the two colleagues mentioned, there's going to be some really special and temporal dynamics associated with the impacts of these conditions. But uh, the issue at stake is that there is going to be some targeted, you know, uh, response with regards to additional pressure with regards to household food security and nutrition, uh, you know, imposed upon by the, you know. Uh, oncoming and incoming already uh, in conditions. So government is also trying to look at um, uh, options of food importation. Suffice to mention that when we talk about food importation, as you can see that our immediate partner, our immediate neighbors, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa, which would have been next door to know when it comes to food importation, are already experiencing similar conditions. So what that means is there is a need to cast the net wider to other regions uh, uh, outside within the context of Malawi. But that has got implications on the forex reserves, which the country is already suffering uh, as a result of uh, the you know, financial and macroeconomic conditions that are not in the good shape. So this Eonino uh, conditions is already plunging Malawi into a precarious condition, uh, both in terms of fiscal space responses to these Eonino conditions and the productive capacities that have to be you know, addressed uh, to facilitate farmers to produce steel using irrigation measures and other interventions, but also providing social protection measures uh, to households in the rural areas that are likely to be affected uh, by these conditions. So, just a nutshell, those are some of the you know issues that are being you know considered and being debated upon within the response space uh, regarding El you Nino know, impacts in Malawi. I think I'll pause there. That could be my last slide, I should think.
9: Yeah.
3: Thank you so much Andrew and James for an excellent presentation. Um I think let me jump in with a few questions. So first um to you James you've been you and your your team um, have been modeling economy wide effects of a number of recent shocks in in a variety of countries. So I was curious how these modeled el nino scenarios that you just presented how they compare and i mean sort of in terms of magnitude their distribution their pathways to other shocks you've been looking at like covid-19 ukraine war um etc in malawi or in other economies and i should add to that a question which i think um you could probably deal with in in the same response from somebody who asks Could you say more about why rural households in Malawi are so much more affected by undernourishment compared to urban households?
9: No, thanks, Joachim, and and thanks, thanks for that that question um, from the audience. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think you know we we are so used to nowadays, um, you know accepting the fact that we have dealt with one crisis after another, back to back, and and so it's an obvious question whether or not what El- what Malawi may experience this year is worse than something as severe as, say, COVID-19. So we've been doing some of this analysis in, in, in Malawi in the past and um, the impacts of of say COVID on agriculture were actually relatively muted. Um, You know, we we are compared to say industry and services. And so COVID-19 had a big impact on the overall economy Um, But the impacts on agriculture were actually fairly small. And and so by implication, the impacts on on poverty and food security were were less severe. It was more the downstream parts of the food system that were affected by lockdowns and other COVID policies. And that's shown up in the GDP number for agriculture, which actually continued to grow during the COVID period. In fact, it accelerated above expectations. Um, in, In the case of Ukraine, though, that was an impact on, say, fertilizer and food prices. And although wheat is not as important for Malawi as maize, um, it did lead to to an increase in the cost of food and and as joe said we're still waiting to see what the impacts on fertilizer may be but we know in malawi there have been troubles in distributing fertilizer and that that impact on farmers was actually quite severe. So in terms of magnitude, um, the impact on El Nino is actually significantly higher on the overall, significantly larger than than say COVID-19 or Ukraine by a factor of four. Um, So we're expecting a 4% decline in in GDP under a a typical El Nino year, whereas in the case, the combined effect of COVID in Ukraine was only about a 1% decline in GDP during those years. The impacts on poverty during El Nino um, in Malawi you know, that's a factor of two larger. So, so we would expect El Niño to have twice as large an impact on poverty and undernourishment than we saw during either COVID or Ukraine. So El Niño is the largest crisis of the three that um, that Malawi has faced in the last few years. Why is the impact on under- rural undernourishment so much larger than, than say, poverty? Well, when it comes to measuring poverty, what really matters is household incomes and and real incomes after you've accounted for the change in in prices. And um, in the case of rural farmers in Malawi, they're being hurt by the decline in food production, their incomes are going down, but this is being offset by higher prices. And so their impact on incomes is perhaps less severe than it would be if you were a non-farmer just facing the increase in prices. But for undernourishment, what matters is the availability of calories, and that can't be offset by an increase in prices. Um, And so we're seeing a big decline in staples production in Malawi during a typical El Nino year, and that just leads to less calories, more expensive calories, but less calories for everyone. And that's why rural households, rural farmers still experience an increase in undernourishment. Thanks, Joachim.
3: All right, um, Channing. I should ask you. Can I ask one more question, or should we? Should I hand over to you?
0: You can go quickly, and then I will. I will go up. So just one minute, please. Great.
3: Very, very good. So Andrew, I was curious. Um, you know, we mentioned the forty-four percent devaluation on 9th of November in Malawi. There, a uh, week later, on the fifteenth of November, the IMF announced that it would um ex- there would be a uh, staff monitored program um with an extended credit facility. Do you see this as um how how do you see this impacting the response of the government? Is this an important evolution? Um but what, what do you think will will happen in the in the months going forward?
10: Yeah, thanks Joachim. I think that just quickly, I think the coming in of the uh, IMF staff monitor program on the extended credit facility, which is a temporary relief to countries that are experiencing hard you know, macroeconomic conditions to do with credit crunches, uh, lower forex reserves, uh, it, it's just going to ease a little bit uh, the kind of you know forex squeeze that Malawi is experiencing, enabling it to really activate certain productive facilities within the you know the economy, which could ride on the tide of the fact that there's a temporary relief in terms of the, you know, forex base of the country. So, inappropriate investment uh, of this kind of credit facility would definitely document the country's you know, squeezing in, you know, really decomposing fiscal space. But appropriate management of likely to be investments uh, will also facilitate a proper, you know, kind of you know response to this kind of you know, crisis that Malawi is going through, because uh, most likely if it is well-managed as a facility, it's going to provide some kind of you know, stability in terms of you know, prices of commodities, including food, which will help households to access the food. Other than that, if, if it's not well-managed in that, in that respect, then obviously we should expect you know, continued kind of inflation, which is going to drive food prices way up high, uh, unreachable to many of the households, particularly in the rural areas, and creating much more food insecurity hunger and consequently malnutrition. so it depends on how government is really maneuvering in the space to manage this you know extended credit facility but also suffice to mention that this is a positive development because we've seen incoming support from other you know multilateral partners that we we have in the country that are riding on the tide of positivity that the ecf has granted Malawi. so we're hoping that with the coming in of these additional resources from other partners in development uh, we, we should be able to ride uh, on that and
3: navigate through the terrain of uh,
10: uh, in shortage of food with minimal kind of you know, impact to the population.
3: Of- Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for that response. Over to you, Chan. Thank you very much. Um,
0: I want to give a, a thanks to to our audience for for joining us. Um, I hope this was useful. I found it uh, extremely illuminating. I'd like to give a thanks to all of our our, our speakers. A uh, special thanks to to Andrew, uh, to Karen, and to Weston for, for joining us. Um, and we look forward to, uh, we hope this was useful, and we look forward to doing more of these events uh, in future. So uh, goodbye, and uh, we hope this was useful. Cheers.